Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Vineyard Northwest. I'm Amanda, and I serve here in House Group, which is one of our ministries for any age. We have a bunch of house groups that meet in different parts of Cincinnati. There's a group that even meets here at the church. Some of them um, have child care. Some of them are focused on young adults. Some of them are for any age. If you're interested in checking that out and kind of getting more plugged in and involved at the church that way, you can check out at the Welcome Center. There are little cards with a bunch of different addresses on them so you know where you can go and what day and time of the week. So if it's your first time here or one of your first times here, we're really honored that you came to join us for part of this Sunday, and we're excited to get to worship together. Um, So if you would like to fill out a Connect card, we'd really appreciate that. They're the cards in the seat pocket in front of you, and you can drop that in the offering later on in the service, or you can leave it on the Welcome Center on your way out. And if you would stop by the Welcome Center, that's in the atrium right out of these middle doors. You can pick up a welcome bag. It has a gift, um, just like a download for a Vineyard Worship album and some other things about the church so that you can get to know more about what's going on around here. So later on in the service today, we'll be receiving our offering. And just a few things about that. You can make checks out to Vineyard Northwest, and there are envelopes and seat pockets in front of you for giving. And you can also give online through our mobile app. It's a really easy, convenient way that we love to give as well. So there are a few things that are coming up around here that I'd like to highlight. And first, you've probably seen as you're walking in today, there's something going on in the atrium. So um, this is actually a Fair Trade Ministries fundraiser that Iris Gomez is putting on. So Iris has been an intern at Vineyard Northwest for about six or seven months now. So you've probably seen her walking around here. If you have kids, I'm sure she's served in the kids ministry with them a little bit. Um, And she's just been doing awesome things here. And so this is her final project to put this um, fundraiser on. So the Mercy Kids is the organization that the proceeds support. And they bring money, goods, services to kids in northern Nicaragua that have special needs or economic disadvantages. Um, And all the products out there are all made... um, by like local artisans, ethically made. Um, there are home goods, gifts, jewelry, um, lots of things to check out, and everything just goes to support a great cause. So after the service, if you'd like to stop by, they'll be out there until like two or so, so you can browse through that. Um, so I'm just going to pause a little bit from the announcements to share a story with you guys. So if you remember, in like the end of April, beginning of May, I think um, we shared about a beloved staff member here, Dan Smoker, he was hiking with his grandson in Colorado and actually like took a big fall and um, it was like looking really serious, the injuries that he had. When he had gone to the hospital, they were just calling him, their, like, the nurse term for him was the broken man, but then after a few weeks, they were calling him the miracle man because of the recovery that he had. So it was awesome seeing God do things in his body and um, totally keep him safe. And so this morning, I actually saw him walk through the doors here today. So he's doing awesome. And um, a cool story about him is about a month ago, at the beginning of June, he came here for our monthly healing rooms. And I'll give you more information about that if you haven't heard of what those are. Um, So he came to the healing rooms because he had a bunch of blood clots in his legs. And that night, him and his wife got some prayer for him. And that was a Saturday. And the following Tuesday, he went to the doctor and all of the blood clots were gone. Isn't that amazing? That is so cool. We love seeing God do that kind of stuff in people's physical bodies and do things like that in their emotional and spiritual selves as, selves as well. Um, and so that is 
what is coming up next weekend, the healing room. So those happen once a month on the first Saturday of the month here. So that's Saturday, July 7th is when we'll have our next healing rooms. So anyone is invited to come. If you have any type of physical healing needs, emotional healing needs, if there's a situation or a circumstance in your life that you would just love more individual prayer for, we'd love to invite you to come, bring a neighbor, bring a friend with you. Um, and so what these look like is you'll come and just kind of sign in, and then you'll go to a room where there's just worship, live worship going on and people praying, and you'll just kind of get to sit and relax um, for a little bit. Then you'll get to go to a separate room by yourself with um, a few people, like a little prayer team just for you, and they'll spend some time praying for you. So it's an awesome time, um, and we just love to invite you to come to that. All right, the last thing that I would like to announce is the family water night coming up. So that's on Wednesday, July 11th, and this is put on by the kids ministry, family group, and the youth ministry. So anyone, any age is invited to come to this. It is just a fun water night in the parking lot. There'll be tons of water games, popsicles, I'm sure, maybe water balloons, anything wet and fun outside. That is something that you would would love for you to come to with us. All right, so next I am going to introduce and welcome up Sarah Anderson. She's our children's director here, and she's going to share a message with us today. Actually, I'm not going to invite Sarah up yet. Sorry. That's what I did last service. But this service, we're actually going to pray for Nick and Jocelyn. So, sorry. Okay, one more thing. So Nick and Jocelyn um, spoke at church a couple weeks ago. And could you just stand up really quick so people can see? If you remember, they spoke at church. And they're actually leaving tomorrow to go to Australia to do YWAM for a year to do a birth school. And Nick is doing grad school while he's there. And so... As we just send them, and this is their last Sunday here, we would just love to pray for them before Sarah comes up. So um, I want to invite Nick and Jocelyn to come up in front of the stage, and then a few people if you want to come up that are friends or family and close to them, and we'll just take a second and pray for them. So I'll just pray if you guys out there also want to just join me in praying for them. So yeah, Jesus, we thank you so much for Nick and Jocelyn and just the deposit that they've made on so many lives here at Vineyard Northwest and in Cincinnati. And we just welcome your peace on them in this last like 24 hours really here in the States. Just welcome you, Holy Spirit, to just bring them new peace. And we just thank you for what the next 11 months are going to be for them and how you're going to work in them and through them and what you'll be doing in Australia and in other countries as they go and travel to other countries. Yeah, and we just pray for amazing breakthrough in their hearts of what you're doing in them and in what you're going to do through them and the lives that they're going to touch and the births that they're going to be at and the freedom that um, Nick and Jocelyn get to bring to people. So yeah, we just thank you so much for them and what they're doing and just bless them as they go. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning. How you guys doing? Good. Are you awake? It's 1130. You guys should be like really awake by now. So today we're going to be in 2 Timothy chapter 4 verses 6 through 8. So let's start by reading those. 
For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time for my departure is near. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. Right, so to recap, we've been in this series called Rise Above for the past couple months where we've really kind of gotten deep into the letter of 2 Timothy. And I don't know about you guys, but I've really loved it. I've learned so much about Paul, so much about Timothy, about the relationship with each other, some really good theological truths, and then also some really practical things about how we actually are supposed to live this Christian life. But this passage today is really one of the keys to understanding the whole letter. This is where we learn that Paul is in prison and he's on death row. This is where we learn that he's going to die. And that's the purpose of him writing this letter. And that just makes us read the whole letter in a different light. It just makes it kind of heavier, kind of weightier. Paul's going through this really difficult time, and he's sending a letter to his spiritual son. They've been in relationship with each other for such a long time. You know, I was thinking of one of my best friends. Her name's Sarah Smoker. Dan Smoker, our staff member that had the terrible fall, is her father-in-law. And actually, my brother is best friends with Danny, Dan's son. And so my best friend married my brother's best friend. And it was really kind of cool. But Sarah and I have been best friends since church camp when we went, when we were, I don't know, nine or ten years old. We've been best friends since then, and she moved to Colorado seven years ago. But we've stayed close, even though she's been far away. We've been there for each other when we've had babies, when we've had surgeries. Anything that happens that's big in our lives, we've been able to be there for each other. And this past March, when Dan fell... That was really hard. It was her son, Eli, that was on the mountain with Dan when he fell. And knowing that I couldn't be there with her was really, really hard. And thankfully, we have text messaging and phone calls and FaceTime even and, I, and Facebook. And I knew the story so intimately. And we were so connected during that time. And we text more during that time than we have in Years probably, because it was just necessary. She was going through one of the hardest things she'd gone through. And I wasn't able to be there with her. And that's kind of like Paul and Timothy right now. Paul's going through the hardest thing he's ever been able to go through. And Timothy's not there with him. And that's hard. And so when he writes a letter to Timothy with that being the context, the letter just takes on such a deep meaning. And then in chapter four, after these verses, he says, Timothy, try and come to me quickly. Try and come to me. When Sarah was finally able to come to Cincinnati, it was after Dan was already home and she was able to come. And when we saw each other, man, (laughs) that hug, it just felt like a breath of fresh air just to be able to see her. And even though I knew the whole story, we went out to dinner and she recounted the whole story from her side and I recounted the whole story from my side because just to be in person, to be together, made it feel more real. It wasn't real until she was here. So that's the kind of depth of relationship that Paul and Timothy have. It's not just a letter to a friend. It's not just a letter off the cuff or a heart, like a lighthearted birthday letter. This is like some real intense stuff that's going on here. 
Paul says in verse 6, For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time for my departure is near. Right before this passage, Paul gives Timothy some final instructions. He tells him, preach the word in season and out of season. Do the work of an evangelist. He tells him to do those things, and then he transitions to talk about himself. He says, because I am going to die. I'm not going to be here, Timothy, so you have to pick up the baton. You have to keep running the race. Paul wants to make sure that Timothy knows what to do because he's not going to be there. The word departure was a typical euphemism used at the time to talk about death. We don't really talk about death using the word departure anymore. We might say, like, kick the bucket or pass on or he's not long for this world. Um, But... Timothy would have understood what departure meant. You know, he knew that Paul wasn't saying, oh, I'm going to leave the prison. He was talking about his death. Now, when Paul says already and that the time is near, he's not necessarily indicating that his death is coming immediately, but that it is certainly coming. He's indicating the certainty of his death. The trial has already happened. The sentence has been handed down and it's a sure thing. It's coming. He has embraced the fact that the sacrifice is coming and he's ready to do it. He's ready to make that sacrifice. Now he says that he's already being poured out like a drink offering. What does that mean? (laughs) Well, I think being poured out means that he's giving all of himself. If I ask you to pour me some lemonade, you're going to pour some and there will probably still be some left in the pitcher. But if I say to you, pour out the lemonade... Something's probably wrong with the lemonade and you're going to pour it all the way out and the pitcher is going to be empty. Paul says that he is being poured out like a drink offering. Even though he's in prison, even though he's been condemned to die, he is still pouring himself out for the kingdom. He's still writing letters to Timothy. He's still encouraging him. He's still giving everything that he can to ensure that the gospel is going to continue to to spread. And we'll see that Paul didn't have any regrets about dying for the gospel. He has a calm confidence about the future. If you spend yourself for the kingdom, you're not going to regret it. You might get beat up. You might go through warfare, but it's going to be worth it. Now, not only did Paul say that he was being poured out, but he was being poured out as a drink offering. So I read a couple commentaries this week to try to figure out what exactly was Paul referencing when he talks about a drink offering. And some people think that he was talking about a Roman cultural tradition at that time where at the end of a meal, the Romans would pick up a glass of wine and they would pour it out to signify that the meal was over, that the time was done, time to go home, everything's over. Paul certainly would have been familiar with that tradition and Perhaps he was referencing that his meal, his life was over, the wine was being poured out. But I think knowing who Paul is, knowing that he was a Pharisee, he was a Jew, and he was really immersed in the sacrificial system of Judaism, and that he references the Old Testament, he says that the Old Testament is useful, I think that he was referencing that sacrificial system. In Exodus... We read, this is what you are to offer on the altar regularly each day. Two lambs a year old. Offer one in the morning and the other at twilight. With the first lamb, offer a tenth of an ephah of the finest flour, mixed with a quarter of a hin of oil from pressed olives, and a quarter of a hin of wine as a drink offering. 
Sacrifice the other lamb at twilight with the same grain offering and its drink offering as in the morning, a pleasing aroma of food presented to the Lord. See, in Judaism, which Paul and Timothy had grown up in being Jews, there was the sacrificial system. And on different occasions, for different reasons, you would sacrifice different animals in different ways. And there was a whole system for how you had to do it. And a drink offering was a part of that. Now, Jesus, at the Last Supper, tells the disciples that the bread represents his body and that the wine represents his blood and that his blood is being poured out as the forgiveness of sins. Jesus went to the cross as the sacrificial lamb, and so he therefore effectively ended the need for a sacrificial system. Because Jesus, since he was fully human, but yet fully God, the sacrifice of his body was enough to cover all of humanity for all of all time and all of the sins that they could possibly commit. Because his body was worth so much because he's God. So he ended the need for the sacrificial system. And Paul tells us this in Ephesians 5 too. He says, walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. And then again in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, for Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. So these different sacrifices were made all through time. And then Jesus offers himself as the sacrificial lamb. And Paul acknowledges that he was the sacrificial lamb given for us. But then he says that his life is being poured out as a drink offering. He would never claim to be the main sacrifice. He would never claim that his life was worth as much as Jesus's. But just as a glass of wine isn't as big of a deal to sacrifice as a lamb, a living, breathing, moving lamb that's able to feed a family, to provide wool for a family, Paul's saying, I'm making a sacrifice. Spurgeon said, the drink offering was thus a kind of addendum by which the person who gave it showed his thankfulness. So Paul is resolved to show his thankfulness to Christ, the great sacrifice. And he is willing that his blood should be poured as a drink offering on the altar where his Lord and master was the great burnt offering. He rejoices when he can say, I am ready to be presented as a drink offering unto God. So Jesus is the main sacrifice. He's, he's the one that really counts. But our lives can be added to that sacrifice. We can sacrifice our lives. We can pour our lives out. And we can add something to Jesus' sacrifice to advance the kingdom. That's pretty cool. <laughs> so verse 7, Paul says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith." This verse really portrays the finality that Paul feels. You can almost feel like a sigh of relief. Like I've done it. I've made it to the end. I've kept going. So let's go through these phrase by phrase. First up, fought the good fight is really interesting. The word fight, we would think in America when you say that I've fought the good fight, that you're talking about a boxing match or something like that. But the word is really more of like a grueling competitive event. And then good indicates that it's a noble fight. It's not just good, but it's noble. It's worthy. It's a just cause that he has fought for. It's the best battle to be engaged in. You know, if you're going to give your life to a cause, if you're going to give your life to fight for something, it should be the battle that's the best. It should be the one that has a sure ending, a sure victory. 
I don't want to give my life saying that I have fought the fight of mediocrity. Or that I fought the fight of survival. Or I fought the fight of being rich. Or I fought the fight of, oh, I haven't bothered anyone and nobody's bothered me. I don't want to live that kind of life. I want to live a life that's running after the kingdom. Next, I have finished the race. It's interesting, Paul doesn't say that he won the race, but that he's finished the race. Now, I haven't been in a race in a really long time. I was probably like 10 (laughs) the last time I was in a race. And really, I didn't want to be in a race unless I knew that I could win the race. So I didn't race very often. (laughs) Running and I are not such a good match. But I know people that run. You know how there's kind of like people that run and then the rest of us? So I know people that run and they do 5Ks and they do half marathons and they do marathons. And man, are they proud when they finish a race, right? But you never go up to them and say, hey, did you win the flying pig? Because that's such like an elite group of people that win those races. But the runners, they're just happy that they were out there, that they did it, that they ran the race, that they accomplished it, something I could never do, but that they've accomplished the race. It's just a matter of running it. Getting to participate in it is good. Doing it with other people is fun. Sometimes they even put those like marathon stickers on their cars. You know the ones that are like circular and they say like 26.2 or 13.1. Well, I was thinking, what kind of sticker would I put on my car? So I found one that I would put on my car. Says, I don't run underneath it. Or this one would work. Point two six two. And that's kind of how I would look if I ran a quarter mile. <laughs> but probably the most accurate one I would put on my car is that one. Especially, yes. Especially with my love affair of queso, 13.1 tacos. I mean, that's an accomplishment, right? So, anywho, here's the thing. We're not running the race by our strength anyway. If we get put into the race, it's because God has called us. And if we're able to run in it, it's because he's equipped us. He's the one that's inside of us. He's the one that gives us the power and the grace and the patience and the love and the kindness to be able to run the race anyway. It's his race And lastly, Paul says he kept the faith. There are really two possible meanings of this. First of all, that Paul guarded and preserved the gospel message. He received the gospel message. He was an eyewitness to Jesus being resurrected. And he kept that message intact. It wasn't polluted. He didn't let it get polluted by false teachers and by pagan religions. But he really kept the faith whole and intact. You know, the apostles, they really, really thought that Jesus was coming back during their lifetime. They lived with that expectancy and that hope that he was coming back. But as time went on, and as they started to be persecuted and martyred, and they got older, they started to realize, oh my goodness, we might all die and he won't have come back yet. And so they had to start to put some structure around the gospel message and they had to make sure that it was passed down in its true form so that this could continue. 
And so Paul could be saying here, I have kept the faith. I've done my part to keep the gospel message intact. The other thing he could be saying here is that he's kept the faith. He hasn't wandered. He hasn't strayed. He hasn't turned away from Jesus. Even in trials, when they say, do you believe in Jesus? And he proudly proclaims yes and then gets sentenced to die. He hasn't turned from his faith. He's kept the faith. Verse 8. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. The word used here for crown is one of a victor's crown, not a crown used for royalty. We don't really see crowns that often in our culture, in our society. We think of those only as like the Queen of England gets to wear a crown. But it's a victor's crown. You know, the ancient Olympics were held even before Jesus came. And the winners there, they were given a crown. They weren't given a gold medal or a silver medal like we think of now. But they were given a crown made out of olive leaves. That was their victor's crown. And back in 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul says, If anyone competes as an athlete, he does not receive the victor's crown unless he competed according to the rules. So now he's bringing it full circle and he's saying, I am receiving the victor's crown. He's competed according to the rules. He's kept the faith. He's run the race. And so now he gets to receive the victor's crown. But in 1 Corinthians, he also says, Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. The victory crown we are going to receive isn't temporary. It's not made out of olive leaves where it's going to turn brown and wither and get gross. It's eternal. The crown that we get is going to be glorious. Now let's step back and think for a minute about where Paul is as he's writing this. He's sitting in prison. If you weren't here when I preached on 2 Timothy chapter 1, I showed a picture of the prison where Paul was believed to be held. I want to show it again today just so you can really picture like where Paul is. He's sitting there saying that he's going to receive a victory crown. His situation couldn't be any more dire. It's gross. It probably smelled in there. He's going to die. It couldn't be. The only way it could be more dire is if the executioner was actually standing there ready to execute him. His earthly situation is dire. It's as far away from victorious as you can get. But is that the outlook that Paul has? Is that what he's focused on? Not at all. He has his mind on the heavenly perspective. In that perspective, he's waiting on an award ceremony. There's an eternal victory crown that isn't going to tarnish. And the judge, God, who is the righteous judge, in juxtaposition with the judge that just condemned him to die on earth, is going to award it to him. Heaven and earth have different perspectives. They are different realities. Both are true. Both are real. Paul really is facing an award ceremony in heaven. But he is also really facing an executioner's block on earth. Both of those things are true. And they couldn't be further apart. This happens in our lives all the time. Heaven has one perspective of our life and earth has another. Which one are you focusing on? 
Which reality do you pay attention to? Which reality plays over and over in your mind? I've shared a little bit before about my husband and I and our journey through trying to adopt and then we did foster care and then we tried to adopt again. And when we decided to do foster care, it really did not make any earthly sense at all. We went through the training to become foster parents and then found out we were pregnant. Surprise. (laughs) And so we put our inspections and things on hold, but then we actually got the training um, or our certificate in the mail on the my son's due date. Now he was early, so he was two weeks old, but we actually got our certificate, our license in the mail on his due date. And people would say to us, why are you trying to foster right now? This does not make any sense. You have a newborn. You have three boys. Your hands are already full. You need to focus on your family. You're not even sleeping. You can't do foster care. But when we got the call for the two girls, we said, well, of course we'll take them into our home. And so when we took the girls, we then had five kids age five and under. Here's a picture of our family. So the boys were five, three, and five months. That's a couple months after we had the girls. And the girls were four and five months. The babies were eight days apart. And people used to ask me if they were twins. Nope. (laughs) Certainly not. (laughs) But, you know, I remember the day before they came, we got the call that it might happen and it was looking pretty sure. And so Grant and I decided to try and put the car seats in the van. Like, let's just, you know, be prepared. And so we went outside and actually Danny and Sarah Smoker were in town. They just happened to be in town during all of our important life events. God's just gracious to us in that way. And so the four of us are out there for like an hour sweating and it's hot. And we're like trying to solve this puzzle. And I just had this moment of, if we can't even get the car seats in the van, should we really take these kids? Like if we can't handle this, can we really handle human beings? You know, but that was the earthly perspective. And so we finally got the car seats in But both of the babies had to be in the back row. So every time we went anywhere for 10 months, I had to open the back hatch of our minivan, take out the huge double stroller, and then climb in, lean over, unbuckle the babies, scoop one of them out, climb out carefully, put them in the stroller, and then repeat. And then do that in reverse when we got back into the car. And people gave me so many weird looks in parking lots. And meanwhile, the older three, I'm like, please don't run away. Stay down, sit sit still. I mean, it was hard. It was really hard. But that was the earthly perspective. Yes, we were in survival mode. Yes, we didn't sleep very much. Yes, bedtime was like, "Ah, please go to sleep. Yes, it was hard. But what's heaven's perspective? Heaven's perspective was that those girls needed us. Heaven's perspective was that their mom needed us. That their mom was worth it. That she needed us to go through something hard so that she could get her life where it needed to be. She's a great mom. She's a great mom. Heaven's perspective is that Grant and I got closer than we'd ever been. 
Because we had to. We had to rely on each other. We came up with the phrase, you and me. You and me against the world. Or, you know, you and me against the five kids. But (laughs) we still say that when hard things come up. We look at each other and it's you and me. (laughs) Heaven's perspective is that our family got closer. Our family learned how to love, really love, 24 hours a day, gross spit up all the time and gross diapers and really love. We learned about our extended family's ability to love and accept those kids into our family. Heaven's perspective of that situation was very different than Earth's perspective. Finances. Earthly perspective on finances is a lot different than Heaven's perspective on finances. It makes zero earthly sense to tithe. None. Especially if you're in a hard financial situation. Earth would tell you, hold on to every dime that you can get your hands on. Make sure that it's allocated exactly appropriately to cover all of your needs, all of your bases. You shouldn't be giving to God right now. You don't have enough. You can barely feed your kids. Grant and I went through some hard financial times. He was a teacher. I was a stay-at-home mom. We had five kids for a while. That's hard. But we started to do Dave Ramsey's Financial Peace University. And one of the first things he tells you is you got to tithe. You got to do it. And I'm the budget nerd. And so I would go through our budget. And I would know that we should not have enough money. We should not. And there would be money in the account. And I would do the math and I would say, there should not be money. And I would do the math again and I would do the math again. And then there's money in the account because God is a provider and he has access to heaven and he has access to all of the resources of heaven. When you hold on to your money so tightly, he can't get to it to bless it. You have to release it. You have to give some of it to him and say, I trust you. You're the provider. You are good. And then he goes, oh, let me bless you. Let me bless you. He wants to bless you. Earth's perspective is if you're in a hard financial situation, hold on to it. Heaven's perspective, if you're in a hard financial situation, give more away. It doesn't make sense. They ha- they're, they're different perspectives. They're different realities. Which one are you listening to? Which one are you focused on? What's your reality? We recently did a video Bible study series and family group about open doors, about opportunities. And my biggest takeaway from the six-week series was that it really doesn't matter what door you go through. It matters how you go through the door. It doesn't matter if you move into the new house, if you take the job, if you agree to be a foster parent. How are you going through the door? Are you going through trusting God, trusting him for his provision, being kind and loving and patient to those that are around you? Or are you going through the door just racked with fear and anxiety and not trusting God? We have to keep our eyes on heaven's perspective of our reality. What are you focusing on? So back to our verse, Paul says that he will receive the crown of righteousness, but not only he will, all of us will. Do you know that? You're going to get a crown of righteousness. If you've ever trusted Jesus, you get a crown of righteousness. What's your gut reaction to that? Is that like, yes, finally some reward. 
Is your reaction one of inadequacy? Oh, me? I'm not worthy to get a crown. Or is it one of comparison? Either on the side of pride, like, woo, buddy, my crown is going to be big. It's going to be pretty. It's going to be so much bigger than hers. (laughs) Or of comparison from a jealousy side of like, oh, my crown's not going to be as big as hers. Everyone's going to look at me and see how small my crown is. It really doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter. Because here's the deal. When we are in heaven, when we are face to face with God the Father, you're not going to want the crown. You're going to take it off of your head as quick as you possibly can and cast it back at the foot of the throne. Because he is the one who's worthy. He's the one that gave you the righteousness in the first place. He is the righteous one. And so you're going to cast it back to him. You're going to be so consumed with how beautiful and how glorious and how worthy of being praised he is that you're not going to be focused on your crown, except for how fast you can give it back to him. You're not going to be looking at the size of it. You're not going to be looking at the size of the person's next to you. Your focus is going to be on Jesus. It's going to be good. Revelation 4, 10 and 11 The 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they were created and have their being. God is worthy. And he's the righteous judge. Notice that Paul doesn't have any fear about going before God and being judged. He knows what the verdict's going to be. He knows that he's going to be judged righteous. He knows he's going to get like the gold medal of righteousness given to him on that day. We don't have to have any fear about dying. We don't have to have fear about arriving in heaven and what's God going to say to me. We already know. Now, it's interesting because Paul, in 2 Corinthians, he's the one that said that Jesus became sin so that we might become his righteousness. If I'm already the righteousness of Christ, why am I not receiving the crown of righteousness until I'm in heaven? Like, I'm already righteous. Well, in the vineyard, we have what's called a kingdom theology. And it kind of colors the way we read the Bible. It colors the way we view the world. It's like our lens that we look at everything through. And a big part of kingdom theology is this phrase, already and not yet. The kingdom is already here. You're able to experience the presence of God. People are able to be healed. But it's not yet here in its entirety. There's still sickness. There's still evil. There's still times that people aren't healed. The kingdom's already here, but it's not yet here all of the way. This is like the already not yet of righteousness. We are already righteous, but it's not here all the way. We still sin. We still make mistakes. It's not here all the way. It's already here. We're already righteous. But when we go to heaven, that's when we'll experience it in its entirety. That's when we get the victor's crown of righteousness. That's when it's complete. That's when it's full. I love that. So to wrap up, Paul wasn't a masochist. He didn't want to die. He wasn't looking forward to dying in the earthly realm. 
But he had this triumphant confidence about him because he kept his mind on heaven, on what was going to happen when he was in heaven. He was so in tune with his identity in Christ that he could face death with confidence. I want to be so in tune with my identity as a daughter of God that I can live my life just pouring myself out as a drink offering to him. Where the certainty of imminent death doesn't shake me. And where I know that I'm going to slide into that grave (laughs) saying, what a ride. So let's pray. Father, I thank you for today. I thank you for every heart that is here. I thank you that we know, we can know that you're going to crown us with righteousness when we arrive to see you face to face. We thank you for that certainty. Pray that you'll give us even more of a desire to live completely poured out to you. We love you, God. Amen. All right, we're going to move into the next part of our service. So we're going to start by receiving the offering. So if you're on the far left of a row, if you can grab the basket and send that down the aisle. And if you're an usher, you can come on down to receive the offering. You know, even giving just a small amount in the offering basket, if it's given with faith, just says, God, it's yours. I trust you. So thank you for giving so generously. So God, we bless this money. We pray that you would multiply it, that you would give us as much as we need to be able to serve all the ministries of this church here and around the world. Amen. All right, today is communion Sunday. We take communion on the first Sunday of the month. So if you are serving communion, you can go back to get ready for that. And I am the children's pastor. And so I'm going to read you a story from the Jesus Storybook Bible. If you don't have this for your kids, you should get it. And if you don't have this for yourself, if you're a grown-up, you should get it. It's really good. It's really, really good. It's a beautiful story. It says on the front, every story whispers his name from creation all the way through. So it's just beautiful. I'm going to read you a story about the Last Supper. It was Passover, the time when God's people remembered how God had rescued them from being slaves in Egypt. Every year they killed a lamb and ate it. The lamb died instead of us, they would say. But this Passover, God was getting ready for an even greater rescue. Jesus and his friends were having the Passover meal together in an upstairs room. Jesus picked up some bread and broke it. He gave it to his friends. He picked up a cup of wine and thanked God for it. He poured it out and shared it. My body is like this bread. It will break, Jesus told them. This cup of wine is like my blood. It will pour out. But this is how God will rescue the whole world. My life will break and God's broken world will mend. My heart will tear apart and your hearts will heal. Just as the Passover lamb died, so now I will die instead of you. My blood will wash away all of your sins, and you'll be clean on the inside, in your hearts. So whenever you eat and drink, remember, Jesus said, I've rescued you. 
So as you eat and drink today, remember that God has rescued you. He wants to heal your hearts. He wants to mend our broken world. If you've ever trusted Jesus, then you're welcome to partake in communion. How we do it here at this church is that there'll be stations up front and in the back. And you just take your certified gluten-free cracker and dip it in the juice. So come and partake. generation of men, older, seasoned, wise men in this church that are going to be released into passionate worship. So if you would claim to be older, seasoned, you know, whatevs, put your hands out. Holy Spirit, we release your passion We break off the lie that they are too old to be passionate, that they can't dance, that they can't sing, that they can't shout. We release passionate worship in this house for these men at this time. And I saw that happening. Like you guys were going for it. And I think that that's really good. And I think that that's rare. So keep, keep running after Jesus in worship. Now, on a different note, there could have been some of you here thinking, is God really just that good? Is he really that good? I've never experienced that God is that good to make you want to be passionate and jump and dance and sing. And I want to tell you, he is that good and he wants you to feel it. So put your hands on your heart and Holy Spirit, we just invite you to come and just... Show us your goodness. Touch us in our bodies. Manifest your spirit. Manifest your presence so we can feel your goodness. 
He wants you to know what his perspective, what the heavenly perspective for you is. Not just your situation, not just what you're going through, but how he looks at you personally. He thinks you are worthy of being loved. He sees you as being whole, being righteous. He sees you as clean and sober. He says, I pick you. I want you. Don't listen to what the earthly perspective might say about you. Listen to God's perspective of you. He loves you. He's just that good that he could love you. He loves you. So Father, as we go out from this place, let us take your songs into the streets. Let us help the streets resound with singing. Let us bring your hope and your joy into the streets of Coleraine, into the streets of Cincinnati. We love you and we want your kingdom. We want your kingdom to come. Amen. I would love to pray with you if something touched you today. If you need heaven's perspective about yourself or about a situation, the prayer teams will come up here. We'd be happy to pray for you for healing or any needs that you might have. So come up for prayer and have a great week.